Good to be with you again this morning. Uh, if you don't get too close, you may smell some Wakanda on me because we were just down. I did shower. I actually did shower. But um, we had the confirmation retreat this weekend, so uh, lots of good discussions and lots of uh, fun, I sure hope, for them. And they're upstairs, full youth room up there, uh, right behind this wall. Probably 15 kids up there all enjoying some breakfast and, and fun up there. So, um, <laughs> good. So we've got, um, today is our last Sunday with Revelation, and I'm going to um, kind of change gears. The last 10 minutes or so will allow some final conclusions. This is my last Sunday teaching this year. Next week, Linda Leon will come on board, and I sure hope you come back, because I know you will be blessed by all that she has to, to offer. Um, I have a baby. Yeah. I know it works. Both. It takes two. It does take two. Um, so, yeah, we should be, due date is June the 8th, but we should be, I, we're thinking the baby will come early, so we'll, we should see a baby in another three weeks. But pray not this week, because this week I'm out of town at a conference. So pray that there's no baby this week. Please, pray with me. Who's my back? Well, yeah, we've got some backups. But, um, yeah, that'll be, I'm, in, I'm in New Orleans, so that'll be quite the trek if I have to get back in the middle of the night, especially. That's right, I do. So, anyhow, um, let's jump into Revelation. But as we do, let's say a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, another opportunity to open your holy scriptures. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us, and that as John had a vision of you all those years ago, that we, our eyes may be opened, our hearts may be opened, our ears may be opened, and that we may receive of you anew. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so today in class we're going to have a brief reminder of the genre that Revelation's in, and of course we remember it's kind of a a mix of genres, right? The predominating genre is apocalyptic literature, and we'll come back to that. We'll look at one, uh, some several passages, uh, as we remember at the end of last week. He who hears the words of Revelation were read aloud receives a blessing. So I want to. Of course, bless you all today and read some scripture with you. And then following that, we will revisit Left Behind, perhaps. Um, so in who's, who's read any of the Left Behind books? One, two, three, four, four. Okay. Who has, who has lots of friends who've read the Left Behind books? Okay. Okay. So I just wanted to see how, um, I, that was a, a test to see how, how important it would be to actually visit that material. I think it's helpful. That was the, the culture I grew up in, was the left behind culture. So then we'll talk about some major theological themes in the book, revisit some other passages, and that's our class. So uh, going back to, uh, defin- oh, you should also have two handouts you should have a single page, all text. This is kind of some some folks had asked, "What books?" You, you mentioned all these different books throughout the class. What were those books? So this isn't an official style sheet. This I don't have. You know, this isn't MLA or SBL form. This is just me. Um, so this these are all the books that I read or consulted throughout the class. 
going back to September. And then this is, of course, your packet for the day. So continuing on, and we'll come back to the other sheet at the end of class. So going back to uh, what apocalypse means, I'm going to zoom through these. So apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature within a narrative framework. And we've talked about this already. I just want to revisit this slowly again. Within a narrative framework, so there's a story, something's being revealed, in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being, like this angel right here, to a human recipient, disclosing something transcendent, a transcendent reality, which is temporal and spatial, intended for a group in crisis. Right? So this isn't just intended for anybody. This is specifically written for particular people and what's going on in people's lives. Why is this being written? They're in crisis. So we're using this genre. We're not just writing them a letter and saying, I hope you feel better. I know life is hard. God will get you through it. It's not just that. It's, it's a lot more than that. With the purpose of exhortation, consolation by means of divine authority. So, yeah, at the heart of the apocalyptic genre, it is um, God saying, I feel so far away from you guys. Mm-mm-mm. We're moving, we're moving, we're moving. There we go. So, um, at the heart of the genre of revelation, or genre, apocalyptic literature, I should say, in general, there is this sense that, um, yeah, God does have this. God is with you. Don't forget it. All those things are present here, but there's this, there's coded language. There's all the spatial image, all this imagery, this scary imagery, uh, if we're honest. And um, as we talked about last week, I'll mention once again, that there's this sense that it's not just descriptive, right? We can't read Revelation flatly, literally, saying, yes, there's this big beast and, you know, all these heads and it's like a lion, but it's like a bear, but it's like a, we're supposed to, rather than reading it literally, we're supposed to uh, get in touch with our, our reactions. How are these words uh, creating images in us, and what, is our, what are our visceral, visceral reactions to the texts? That's part of, part of Apocalypse as well, and particularly Revelation. Using all these images to comfort you, to scare you, to make you weep, what is your reaction? That's at the heart of Apocalypse. So, we'll go right there. We're going to look at one of these passages. We're going to go to Revelation 13. So if you are, if you are better at listening, we're going to listen to a little passage. If you need to follow along, follow along. Revelation's the last book of the Bible, if you haven't figured it out yet. Come on, there we go. So Revelation 13. Let us listen to the word of the Lord. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems upon its horns and a blasphemous name upon its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, 
And the whole earth followed the beast with wonder. Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who was like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Every name whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive if to captivity, he goes. If anyone slays with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What in the world? 42 months. We'll come back to the 42 months. Remind me in, remind me in one minute. So take uh, 60 seconds, turn to your neighbors, or find some neighbors, and uh, what did we just read? What was it all about? You've got one minute. Go. Around the t- around the room, did we f- did we figure out what all of it means? Okay, we hear that we think the beast is Rome, right? Because Rome is the big superpower at this time, right? Is the word Rome anywhere in Revelation? No, not anywhere in the whole of Revelation. They couldn't. <laughs> yes. Bingo, right? If, a Ro- if Roman officials found this book and it was anti-Rome, it would have been collected and burned, right? So uh, John, whoever this John is, had to say, well, wait a second. What if I use Babylon? And this was actually not uh, John's invention. This was kind of a, a, a Christian and Jewish um, custom of the day, especially after the destruction of the temple. Excuse me. After the destruction of the temple, um, there was this sense that we've kind of gone back. Right? Back to the Babylonian destruction. And so Rome is the new Babylon. We don't get Babylon mentioned here, but, um, but still that's the idea that there is this, this beast of Babylon that is Rome. Um, but there's more to it. What else did we, did we read? What else is here? Pam, you, heard, you said something interesting as I walked by your table. anyone. Right. No. No. So there there was a myth, a legend about Nero. So I believe by this point Nero had died. But Nero was kind of this larger than life figure. Imagine if you will that, you know, he's this he's the the embodiment of evil. So in the last 100 years who was the embodiment of evil? 
Hitler. Okay, right? So it would be as if there were a legend that Hitler was coming back from the dead. And that's that some people believe that Nero would come back to life. And he would rule. And for the Jews, for the Christians, that was not good news. And so they had to say, yeah, you've heard that story. But guess what? You just wait. Hold on. Yeah, that, that beast is terrible. That beast, be it, be it Rome, be it Babylon, or maybe it's just a beast. I don't know. And that's one thing in all my reading. Um, it's easy to want to say, oh, this equals this. Let's try to make some comparisons and say, well, this, this beast must be, or you know, this, this monster in heaven must be this kind of thing. It's sometimes just hard to do. Um, and I, I, what, I, what I hope we walk away with is the idea that um, these images, it's not allegory. It's not like you know, the Wizard of Oz or Pilgrim's Progress where everything equals something else. It's not quite that. There's more going on here. Getting back into it, um, verse 8, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Whoa. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. So, in my mind, that's everyone who's outside of the community of faith. Those who have decided not to repent or turn to God, all of those people will worship the beast. So, yeah. Yeah. That, right, everyone but us. Yeah. And the one to whom uh, John is writing, saying, everybody else, a whole earth will, um, will worship the beast. Okay. The other thing is the 42 months. Um, how, many, how many years is 42 months? Three and a half. And three and a half is half of? Seven is perfect. So three and a half is imperfect. So we're not supposed to walk away from this passage saying, okay, there's going to be a beast, and it's going to have how many heads, and it's going to have a wound on this one. It, that's not what we're supposed to walk away from this thinking. We're supposed to think instead that this is, how would this make us feel, right? If you, if you were walking down the street and all of a sudden there was a beast that was like a leopard with bare feet and a mouth of a lion with these seven heads and the ten horns, you, you probably need to go home and get a new pair of pants, right? This is not going to be a good day for you if you see this walking down the street, right? Um, and you take that for what you want. Um, it's just supposed to be scary, this is supposed to be the scariest thing you can imagine. And guess what? Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. The scariest thing you can imagine? Yeah, some people might worship this beast. Some people, this beast may come back to life. There may be this wound that is healed. It doesn't matter. Endure and hold on to faith in God. Kent? Oh, that's a good question. Would you have understood all of it in the first few centuries? Um, probably more than we do today. Yeah, I certainly think that there's, because there's that temporal difference, we don't, under, we don't get it all, for sure. Um, 
and yeah. But I think what what I find helpful in modern to that point of does it just have uh, applicability in the first few centuries or does it have applicability today? Um, Michael Gorman, if you go back to this sheet, if you go over to this sheet, the very bottom book. Oh nope, not that one. The one above that. I should have bolded the, the one above it, not breaking the code. Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman, probably one of the best books I've read. Um, it's, I'm still in the halfway through it, but it is top 10 best books I've read. And it is, a, it is a study of Revelation, and what I appreciate so much that maybe not others would, he has read all the books, and he said, these are the things you need to know. And what he says is, yes, there was applicability in the first few centuries. Yes, they would have understood it better. But there's still applicability today. Not like left behind. Not like, you know, there's going to be a rapture and the good people are going to be taken away and the bad people are going to stay and seven years of tribulation. It's not that. Instead, it is a call to protest. It is a call to resist. Um, Brian Blunt from Princeton would say it's... um, it's a call to nonviolent resistance, even today, right? So uh, Brian Blunt has a whole book about how reading Revelation through African-American experience, um, which is a book I hope to add to my shelf someday. It's not there yet. But um, there's this sense that people in crisis hear this differently. It is a word of comfort. For us, we who are uh, white and comfortable and privileged in America, this is... This is not necessarily a book for us. This may be actually a book against us. So says Gorman and other scholars like him, in that we represent empire. We uphold empire. And Revelation, by and large, is anti-empire. We believe all these things about uh, what, is, what is right. Economy and culture and politics. And John is saying, no, no, no. Forget all that you th- Think you know God is God, and that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Okay. But regardless of your standing in life, you do have hurts and pains. You do. But, but, but this is going to a group in crisis. So this is like the, the minority uh, of Christ- in that era. It was written to the, the persecuted group. And I don't think we can take on that label of being the persecuted group. So, uh, Fred. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, the, there was imperial theology, right? There was this sense that, you know, the emperor has descended from the gods or is a son of God. And all that goes with it. And Gorman goes into it. I didn't, we're not going into it today. But there is this sense that all of the, everything that you're drinking in, this, this mix of pagan faith and pagan religion with the, the, the politics, this, this wedding of this, this is not right. And everyone is being believing this lie that this is good, this is right. And John is saying, don't believe it. 
And in fact, uh, Gorman and others would say that there is this, um, John is really developing an anti-imperial theology. He is saying, empire, all that you're believing, that's a lie? No, no, this is the truth. So he's putting a line in the sand saying, this is the truth. Did anyone just hear a doorbell? It's like, am I, is that you, God? Like, what's I was at like, you're right, ding. Good job. I'm like, okay. Um, we're going to skip. <laughs> Say again. Oh, the Lord has spoken. We're going to skip 14, although there's some good stuff there as well. Um, I, do, I do hope that you're reading this. I know it's a, a hard book to get through. Um, if you struggle to read this, I really do suggest you listen to it. Find, a, find the Bible on tape. You've got an app on your phone that can read it to you. Find it somewhere so you can hear it rather than reading it and try to close your eyes and imagine it, right? And how does it make you feel, right? If you walk down the street and saw that beast, okay, uh, you can figure out the rest. So let's go on to, fi- we're going to skip 14 and go to 15 just for a moment. 15, 1 through 4. Then I, John, saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire. Okay, sea, glass? Why does that make sense? Mixed with fire. He's describing the indescribable here, right? And those who had conquered the beast, right, the beast which we've talked about, and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses. Where did Moses come from? Sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds. Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. King of the nations, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. Ooh, that's a good song. So, why is Moses coming in here? He led the people out of Egypt. So Moses is this redeemer figure. But what is also going on in these few verses? There are seven angels with seven plagues or disasters. I think it's, if we hold on to plagues, it's perhaps a little easier to find the connection. What's the connection between Moses and plagues and Revelation and plagues? They were Exodus, right? So in order to redeem the people of Israel, God had to send 10, not seven, 10 plagues against the Egyptians to soften their hearts to, so, that, so that Pharaoh would let my people go, right? And so we read these plagues, all these, you know, these bowls and these, these trumpets and all these bad, bad stuff is happening on earth. And we might think, well, I don't like where this is going. I don't know what this is, but I don't like it. As I talked about last week, it's not all future focused. John, 70% of the, the, the book of Revelation is taking Hebrew Bible verses, recasting them, mixing them up in various ways and saying, this is what the future might be like, or this is what is. God is, as God was, so God shall be. As God sent those plagues, why do you send the plagues? To redeem, to save. In the same way God is sending these plagues throughout Revelation to do what? To get people to change their ways, to repent and to come to God. 
So we're actually going to skip the first few verses of 16, but there you can see that there are actually some... Well, actually, let's look at 16.4. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers of the sp- and the springs of water, and they became blood, just like the river Nile was turned to blood, right? Okay, so there's some comparisons to be made there. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to talk a little, just, just a few minutes about Revelation, and I'll zoom through this. You've got all this there, so I'm not going to dwell too much on this. I, I want to focus more on the next two sections. But um, <clears throat> as one who grew up reading Left Behind and thinking it was kind of gospel truth, I'm here to say it's not. It is a novelization from a, from a few people, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And I think, I think that they are well-meaning Christians. I don't think they're malicious in any way. But they are within a particular sect of the, of, and a particular corner of the kingdom. They live in a particular corner that upholds certain ideals. And that comes through in their interpretation of events. Now, they would admit that it's a novelization of Revelation. But that novelization is twisted in ways that most scholars would say it is, it, it's inappropriate. It's, it's dangerous. And one of the things um, they say, it's not just really fiction, but even within the book, it's like history written in advance. That's kind of how these authors understand Revelation. And so their novelization of it is, this is how it's going to happen. That's, that's not quite, quite it, right? There's more nuance to it. Um, There's also this sense that Jesus is coming back, right? He came once, first advent. Then he's coming again to take people up to, all the good people up to heaven. And then he's coming a third time to judge the earth and destroy, you know, make a new heaven and new earth. And that's not, that's that's what the theology that left behind in books like it would lay out. Hal Lindsey, anybody read Hal Lindsey back in the day? Late great planet earth? Nobody? I'm the only, okay, thank you. The only one who's read this book? Okay. Um, and that was, yeah, that was well after it was, it was popular. It was just, my church was like, oh, here's a good book. You want to read a good book? And I was like, oh, I thought it was good stuff back in the day. Okay. It was exciting. It was exciting back in the day. So, um, the idea of rapture is not present in Revelation at all. At all. Um, and Jesus isn't coming two more times. Jesus will just return once. That's it. That's it. Um, And there's also this foreign 19th century uh, interpretation of these texts called dispensationalism. We talked a little bit about this last week with that, uh, what was it called? The historical, that idea that all the churches represent different eras. That's part of dispensationalism more broadly. But they, they love this stuff, and they write it right into their books. Uh, it also s- assumes we're on the brink of the rapture and tribulation, and that's all that matters. And what's problematic with... Um, we'll come back to that, actually. Maybe not. What's problematic with that is it's, it, this is a, a strong evangelical thrust today, is that all that matters is that the tribulation is coming, and we've got to get as many people saved as possible. And because of this is the predominant theology in evangelical circles of which I was raised in, right? My grandmother, when she passed away, and she was one who, who brought me up in the faith, 
all over her, right, you know, everything that she had written, she said, my children do not take the mark of the beast, as though it was a real thing that could happen. You know, be saved, all these things, that was very present, not just in her, her family, her community. That's all that matters. There's no sense of our day-to-day ethics. There's no sense of how to treat your neighbor, of how to care for the earth. There's no sense of any of those things are important at all because, guess what? God's coming back and he's going to judge you and you've got to get right with the Lord right now because the rapture and tribulation are coming. And you don't want to be in that tribulation because that's not going to be good. And that's what left behind, left, left a lot of people thinking. Right, right. Yeah, if that's, if that's all that really matters, then, yeah, everybody must, uh, has to go home. And I, I um, am I going to tell the story? Sure. Just to evidence how extreme some people can be, um, a friend of Courtney's in her, uh, from Pittsburgh, her whole family bought into this way more than I ever knew was possible to the point that they believe that there's that one stray verse about, um, and woe to those women who are pregnant when... You know, he comes, and what did they do? They told their their daughters not to get pregnant, so much so that they made them believe they shouldn't. And those daughters, they they almost all of them, except Courtney's friend, went and had hysterectomies and were sterilized as young women because this theology told them that that's dangerous, that's scary. And it's this kind of book, this kind of theology that leads people to believe those things. What is all that matters? Rapture and tribulation for those people. But but it misses the most important point of the book. We are focusing on God as Alpha and Omega. We don't move from rapture to the millennium. We move from God to God. We're going to skip that. There's also this sense that it's escapist. We just talked about this. This is where I, was, I, I thought this was next. There's no ongoing ethic. No, no need to love your neighbor um, or uh, practice deeds of mercy or fight for peace and justice because in a few years it won't matter, right? Christ didn't teach that, right? This is, this is the, within that corner of the kingdom that hyper-canonizes revelation to the detriment of the words of Christ and the Gospels. Uh, and there's also within Left Behind, it's very militaristic. So Christian heroes join Jesus, this militaristic Jesus, carrying and using Uzis and the like. Right? This is scary stuff. I, I, I mean, I was sort of making a mental note. Le- left I Behind? I I'm Left Behind? Yes. Uh, it's no longer in my library. Um, I would say beware. If you want to read it, it's a book. Um, but I think it's dangerous. And I, and I think it's so dangerous to the point I would actually say if... It's, it's dangerous to the point that it could, it could get in any one of us at any point. And, that, and I think what's so... Uh, I want to use another word, but dangerous, but I can't think of one. Um, uh, something like that. Is that 
if in any way it, inf- it, it influences our interpretation of Scripture, I think that's dangerous. And so I would, if, if you think you can hold it at arm's length, go for it. Otherwise, I'm not reading it again. So um, it's also uh, anti-Catholic. Really, the only good saved Catholics are those who are basically Protestant. We would not uphold that, right? Um, it's uncritically pro-American, so... There's this sense that America is the bringer of God's justice and the rest of the world be damned. Um, uh, that's problematic. What about the other six and a half billion people on the planet um, and many of those whom are, who are Christians? What about them? Is, is America supposed to be this, this um, amazing superpower? We've got our own problems, right? Good. Yeah. And that's, I think that is one of the major divisions between evangelical and mainline churches, of which we are mainline, if you're wondering, uh, which we do not uphold this kind of tribulation rapture theology, which is only a few hundred years old, I should mention. Only in the, in the 19th century is when this all came about. And really that theology, like Schofield Bible, anyone have a Schofield Bible? Right? That, it was Schofield and Darby. Those are the ones who really started this whole train. Uh, 200 years ago, um, and dispensationalism. Anyhow, um, but there is that division, and that's why you've got some Christians who are saying, you can't have those thoughts and be Christians. Well, yeah, you can. We're just different. We, we trace our history differently, and we trace our beliefs differently. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just going to skip over. This I'll read. Uh, this is just comes right from Gorman. He says this makes the overall series dangerous, spiritually, theologically, and politically. Craig Hill, another uh, scholar, notes that proponents of the rapture have mangled the biblical witness almost beyond recognition. And this is why I have had to, f- in the last two months, I've had to fight to overcome my understanding of Revelation. Because every time I open, it, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, there's the beast, and there's the just like Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye said. And then, oh, no, no, wait, that doesn't make sense. Hold on. And I, it's dangerous. It mangles the witness for the individual as well. Um, and it, it takes a lot of work to undo. Okay. So that's all the negative. We've got that out of the way. Take a breath. <sighs> Let it out. Here's the positive. Okay. So if, if, if that's not what Revelation's all about, what is Revelation all about? And uh, we're going to go through seven quick theological themes um, that, uh, that, again, Michael Gorman says, this is at the heart of the book. The throne, the reign of God, and of the Lamb. So God the creator reigns. Jesus is redeemer, the slaughtered Lamb, and he is Lord. So um, there's, this, there's this cruciform understanding of divine power. Cruciform meaning cross-centered, cross-shaped. Jesus is now here. It's not about this militaristic understanding, right? Jesus isn't holding up Uzis in heaven waiting for the rapture. And it's like, okay, God, and go. It's not, he's, wait, he's not waiting for deployment. Instead, who is on the throne? It's the lamb who was slaughtered. That's who is on the throne. And who is the lamb? The lamb is Jesus. The only one worthy to open the seals, the seven seals. Right there. 
God is, Jesus is God, right? So, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good, that's a good question. So, the throne, the reign of God, God is overseeing all. So, again, coming back to the early church, to Kent's point and to Fred's point of the, early, the first few centuries, this is being understood as an encouragement to those in crisis. You're being told the emperor is God. No, no, no. God, God is not the emperor, and the emperor is not God. This God whom we worship, the lamb who was slaughtered, this is the God whom we worship. This is the true God of gods. There's also another major theological theme is the reality of evil and empire. Um, evil is real, and empire is now. Um, one of the things that uh, Gorman also talks about, which I so appreciate, is he says, um, because John does not specify Rome, in fact, he uses Babylon, which was not present and not around by that time, um, there is this universal applicability to all the anti-empirical, or anti-empire statements that John makes. So um, there's about 30 pages in the book about, well, what does empire look like today? And there is still empire. People that, you know, governments and big organizations that don't care for people, that take advantage, that steal, that um, uh, do not honor the basic humanity, God-given humanity, that is empire. So Revelation still speaks powerfully for today. The evangelical church, corner of the church, especially Tim, Tim, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, They've said Revelation is absolutely important for today, but they have mean that very differently than I do. I think Revelation is important for today, but it is important because it speaks against the powers of this world to say that these powers are not the only powers. These are not the ultimate powers. God is still on the throne, and this empire um, is not forever. Um. <laughs> Temptation to follow uh, to idolatry and immorality. Um, essentially, don't be seduced by those powers. The powers of this world are not what we should be following. Our primary allegiance should not be to the country in which we are born or uh, any, any order or any particular church. Our primary allegiance should be to God in Christ Jesus. And if we remember that, we're pretty good. But the church and those seven churches to which uh, John was writing were struggling because all around them, they were being told, your God is not really a God. Worship this God instead. And if you don't, you are going to be on the outs. You are going to be disadvantaged economically and likely you're going to die because you don't have access to, to, to food or to money or anything. You are cut out of the economic system unless you believe that these gods are truly gods. Come again? Sure, sure. But, but there's this sense of you can, ass, you can assimilate, you can be a part of the system, uh, but Gorman would say you, to be most faithful, you have to be 
against the system, anti-establishment, anti-empire, which is not easy to do. Uh, I mean, the desert fathers who said, I'm done with this, I'm going to go live in the desert, they probably, in some ways, had it right. Um, they also had it wrong in a lot of ways. But um, that sense of we're already in cahoots with culture and we need to be different from culture. That's a hard pill to swallow. But I think that's kind of at the heart of Revelation. Um, in the midst of empire and civil religion, uh, the church is called to resistance um, as the, the inevitable corollary of covenant faithfulness to God, a call that requires prophetic spiritual discernment and may result in all kinds of suffering, right? So that's right to a point we're just talking about. Um, one other, and I don't know who it is, um, Michael Gorman talks about another scholar who, who says, who, oh, it's, um, oh, it just came to me and it left. Nope, it's gone. Um, who says at the heart of Revelation, Revelation's calling us back to first commandment faithfulness. What is the first commandment? In, in the, so that's yes, but even earlier, what in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, what's the first, first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Empire or anything else besides God is a god. You shall have no other gods before God. And yes, you shall love the... Yeah, so I think, I think there's, this, there's this intentional ambiguity. Are we talking about the, the first and greatest commandment of Jesus or the first commandment of the ten? I think it's both. But uh, you have no other gods before me. That's, that's huge. Fred. Yeah. Say again. Oh, creeds, yep. Oh, absolutely related to Barman. Yeah, very much. Yep. Jesus is God above all. Yep. Yep. And what's hard is, um, do I want to go down this path? Four minutes. No, no, it's okay. Um, I've hesitated about going down this path. Um, as I prepared this, what we have to wrestle with, and what I hope Revelation calls us to, and John calls us to, is to wrestle with what does this mean for us today? If we live in empire today, what are we being called to? I don't know. But that's a scary place to be in. If we're really, if we are, we're living in the superpower of the world, right? Um, and that is what Babylon represented for John. If that's where we are, if we are complicit in this imperial system, uh, that's, that's hard. It was a lot easier once upon a time when Rome was in cahoots with a pagan religion. But now, in the politics, Christianity has been tamed, and all politicians are Christian, Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Constantine, Constantine. Anyhow, let's, let's uh, skip ahead. There's a huge focus on worship. Um, Revelation um, provides a vision of, an, of uncivil worship and vision centered on the throne, back to the throne of the eternal holy God and the slaughtered lamb and the coming new creation. There's a sense of pattern of Christ, faithful witness. I'm just skipping ahead because we don't have time for all of this. 
And then um, there's imminent judgment and salvation and the new creation of God. That's the last point at which we end in Revelation. Um, and I'm going to suggest that you read that on your own. Those last, if you read nothing of Revelation, read the last two chapters. If you read nothing else, read those last two chapters. Okay. We've got about 12 minutes or so. Um, and I am, actually, I'll do this. There we go. Um, so I want to allow some time for questions and then final reflections um, before we wrap up this class. So do we have any questions around the room about Revelation, about Gospels, about what did you just tell us? What is going on in this class? What do you really believe? Yeah, Jerry. Ignoring the world? Yeah, okay. Not, not oh, you mean what left behind kind of emphasizes? And the, the idea that all that matters is rapture. Yeah. Yeah. And John would say that that's okay. If you are... John, I would think that John would say being complicit in, a, in an unjust system that doesn't honor God is problematic. And we need to be resisting of anything that is, any, any systems that don't have allegiance to truly who God is, as revealed in Scripture. Yeah. I know. Neither could I. It's a hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, that's why when you read the letters uh, in chapter in the first three, four chapters um, to the one church of Thyatira, those are the ones. If, if memory serves, those are the ones who are struggling financially, not because they don't, they didn't have any money, because they've chosen to resist the system, and because their primary allegiance is to God, they're not allowed to participate in the economy. They can't make a living because their primary allegiance is to the God as revealed in Scripture, as God who's revealed, you know, chose the Israelites and God in Jesus. That is the, the one to whom they have primary allegiance, and because of that, they're being cut out. But the other churches who have forgotten their first loves, right, they are, they are assimilating, they are giving in and saying, well, yeah, I worship Jesus, but... But I can also participate in this, this economic system of exploitation um, and empire, and God will forgive me. And John is saying, John is pretty hardlined and saying, no, 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 you can't have it both ways. If you truly worship this God, when you go to the meat market, you can't eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. You can't, when, when you're in your uh, guild, um, you can't worship the God just to get along with everybody. So what are the gods we are worshiping, or we are called by society to worship today and should we or should our primary allegiance be to Christ and to the Lamb that's kind of the question Revelation leaves us with any other questions comments Ooh. <laughs> once you get that answer you tell me because I don't know that's what all this reading in Revelation has just reminded me of how corrupt I am and I'm complicit in this system that's like oh Am I doing what's right? And yeah, I don't know. 
it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow. I'll say it again. It's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, sure. Well, I think the beauty of it is that it is, there are multiple interpretations. And you, depending on where you are in society or in time, there's slightly different interpretations. Now, there are some that are more responsible to interpretations than others. But it's like a poem. It's like poetry, right? The word um, poet comes from the Greek meaning maker. And John is a maker. He is trying to make images in you. He's trying to make you feel something with his images. They don't, we don't, you know, it's not a flip book. It's not a comic book. If Revelation were, it actually probably would make a pretty good comic. But they didn't have comics, right? And um, there's this strong visual sense. And the images aren't meant to be literal. They're meant to be poetic. They're meant to make these these scary, wonderful, awful, awesome images in your mind and make you sit back and wonder, oh, if that's really that bad, or if that scary beast is worshiping God, or all the, 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 those outside of the covenant community are worshiping the beast, well, I'm not going to do that. I have to resist and hold on to the end. And it's grotesque at some points. It's scary, but it's meant to be. Um, yeah. Other Thoughts or questions? Yeah, Rosie. Yeah. Yep. 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 Do you want my, do you want, um, great. Uh, David Jeremiah is also one of those teachers who upholds dispensationalism and rapture theology. And really, if you go back 300 years into the church, those theologies were nowhere. And so to say that it took us 1,800 years to really figure it out, I think that's, that is crazy. I think that's irresponsible, and I think... Again, here's the D word. I think it's dangerous. To say it took us this long to really figure out what the Bible had to say, what about the people before us? I mean, now, there were, you can go through every century in the last 2,000 years, and there's somebody who said, well, Jesus is coming back soon. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm pushing against. I absolutely believe Jesus is coming back. There's a second coming. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what Revelation upholds. But this, this, foreign theology of rapture and and this huge militaristic focus on Israel and the way in which America is going to be the savior all that stuff is is um, core to dispensational theology in my opinion and American theology Europeans they're like what are you guys thinking we're reading the same Bible and you are very you're reading very different things so um while those teachers may have some good things to say, um, I stay away from dispensationalist theolog- theologians because I think that 
they really believe that the whole, the whole Christian faith is understood and can be unlocked, and the key is dispensationalism. That, that is rapture, that is revelation. All of this is, um, Jesus is coming back to take the good people away. The bad people are going to be, be persecuted and have a tribulation in seven years. It's not there. It's not there. Um, and yeah, you can, you can pick out, I, I grew up in that context, right? You can go, you can find a verse here and a verse there and a verse there. And at some point you have to say, ah, it's being forced. And if for 1700 years, nobody believed it, what are we doing? What are we doing? I think it's um, scary. Um, but it's a good reminder that we need to look back in the history of the church. Because if we come up with something and we say, oh, this, this is obviously what's there in the text, but you're the first person to believe that, like Schofield and Darby 200 years ago, um, there's a pretty good chance that you're reading into the text. Yeah, what made me turn away from rapture theology? Um, I'll be honest, it's still in me, and I have to fight against it, to be honest. Um, but by and large, on, my, on, a, on a conscious, subconsciously, it's still in me. Consciously, I fight against it um, because of what I read in, and, and learned in seminary, right? This is, it's a newer theology, and it's, it's a, a, a cancer within the church, to be honest. It's a cancer that is, um, I think, one of the major reasons the church is struggling so much in the modern day. Because all we care about is the rapture. It's not there. It's not there. We're focused on the wrong things. We're not focusing on the first commandment, faithfulness. Love God, love neighbor. We're not focusing where we should focus. And that's what I think is dangerous. Kent. How does this correlate to apostles' belief that those 